Bakersoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Chapter 6 of Joel, a Boy of Dowley. Recording by Esther Ben Simonites. When Joel went out on the streets next morning, although it was quite early, he saw a disappointed crowd coming up from the direction of Simon's house on the lake shore. Where have all these people been? he asked of the baker's boy, whom he ran against at the first corner. The boy stopped whistling and rested his basket of freshly baked bread against his knee as he answered. They were looking for the rabbi who healed so many people last night. Stay, do you know? he added quickly, as if the news were too good to keep. He healed my mother last night. You cannot think how different it seems at home to have her going about strong and well like she used to be. Joel's eyes brightened. Do you think he'll do anything for me if I go to him now? He asked wistfully. Do you suppose he could straighten out such a crooked back as mine? Look how much shorter this leg is than the other. Oh, do you think he could make them all right? The boy gave him a critical survey, then answered emphatically. Yes, it does not look like it would be as hard to straighten you as old Jeremy, Taylor's father. He was twisted all out of shape, you know. Well, I declare, there he goes now. Joel looked across the street. The wrinkled face of the old basket weaver was a familiar sight in the market, but Joel could hardly recognize the once crippled form, now restored to its original shapeliness. I am going right now, he declared, starting to run his excitement. I can't wait another minute. But he's gone, the boy called after him. That's why the people are all coming back. Joel sat down suddenly on a ledge projecting from the stone. Gone, he echoed drearily. It was as if he had been starving, and the life-giving food held to his famished lips had been suddenly snatched away. Both his heart and his feet felt like lead when he got up after a while and dragged himself slowly along to the carpenter's house. It was such a bitter disappointment to be so near the touch of healing and then to miss it altogether. No cheerful tap of the hammer greeted him. The idle tools lay on the deserted workbench. Disappointed again, he thought. Then the doves cooed, and he caught a glimpse of Ruth's fair hair down among the garden lilies. Where's your father, little one? he called. Gone away with the good men. That makes everybody well, she answered. Then she came skipping down the path to stand close beside him and say confidentially, I saw him, a good man, going by to Simon's house. I peeped out between a rose vines, and he looked right into my eyes with his eyes, and I couldn't help loving him. Joel looked into the beautiful baby face, thinking what a picture it must have made, as framed in roses, it smiled out on the tender-hearted one, going on his mission of help and healing. With her little hand in his, she led him back to hope, for she took him to her mother, who comforted him with the assurance that Phineas expected to be home soon, and doubtless that his friend would be with him. So there came another time to work by himself and dream of the hour surely dawning. And the dreams were doubly sweet now, side by side with his hope of revenge, with the belief in his possible cure. They heard only once from the absent ones. Word came back that a leper had been healed. Joel heard it first, down at the custom house. He had gotten into the way of strolling down in that direction after his work was done, for here the many trading vessels from across the lake, or those that shift from Capernaum, had to stop and pay duty. Here, too, the great rod of eastern commerce passed which led from Damascus to the harbors of the west. So here he would find a constant stream of travelers, bringing the latest news from the outside world. The boy did not know, as he limped up and down the water's edge, longing for some word from his absent friends, that nearby was one who watched almost as eagerly as himself. It was Levi Matthews, 
one of the officials, sitting in the seat of custom. Sprung from the same priestly tribe as Joel, he had sung so low in accepting the office of tax-gatherer that the righteous Laban would not have touched him so much as with the tip of a sandal. Bears and lions, said a proverb, might be the fiercest wild beasts in the forest, but publicans and informers were the worst in cities. One could not bear witness in the courts, and the disgrace extended to the whole family. They were even classed with robbers and murderers. No doubt there was deep cause for such a feeling. As a class, they were unscrupulous and unjust. There might have been good ones among their number, but the company they kept condemned them to the scorn of high and low. When a Jew hates or a Jew scorns, be sure it is thoroughly done. There is no halfway point for his intense nature to take. So this son of Levi, sitting in the seat of custom, and this son of Levi strolling past him, were socially as far apart as the east is from the west, as unlike as thorn and blossom on the same tribal stem. Matthew knew all the fishermen and ship owners that thronged the busy beach in front of him. The sons of Jonah and of Zebedee pest him daily, and he must have wondered when he saw them throw down their nets and leave everything to follow a stranger. He must have wondered also at the reports on every tongue, and the sights he had seen himself of miraculous healing. But while strangely drawn towards this new teacher from Nazareth, it could have been with no thought that the hand and the voice were for him. He was a publican, and how could they reach to such depths? A caravan had just stopped. The pack animals were being unloaded, bales and packages opened, private letters pried into. The insolent officials were tossing things right and left as they made a list of the taxable goods. Joel was watching them with as much interest as if he had not witnessed such scenes dozens of times before, till he noticed a group gathering around one of the drivers. He was telling what he had seen on his way to Capernaum. Several noisy companions kept interrupting him to bear witness to the truth of his statements. And he, who but a moment before had been the most miserable of lepers, stood up before us all, cleansed of his leprosy. His skin was soft and fair as a child's, and his features were restored to him, said the driver. Joel and Levi Matthew stood side by side. At another time, the boy might have drawn his clothes away to keep from brushing against the despised cat-gatherer, but he never noticed now that their elbows touched. When he had heard all there was to be told, he limped away to carry the news to Abigail. To know that others were being cured daily made him all the more impatient for the return of this friend of Phineas. The publican turned again to his pen and his account book. He, too, looked forward with a burning heart to the return of the Nazarene, unknowing why he did so. At last Joel heard of the return, in a very unexpected way. There were guests in the house of Laban again, one of the rabbis who had been there before, and a scribe from Jerusalem. Now there were longer conferences in the upper chamber, and graver shakings of the head, over this false prophet whose fame was spreading wider. The miracle of healing the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, when he had gone down to Jerusalem to one of the many feasts, had stirred Judea to its farthest borders. So these two men had been sent to investigate. On the very afternoon of their arrival, a report flew through the streets that Rabbi Jesus was once more in the town. Their host led them with all the haste their dignity would allow to the house where he was said to be preaching. The common people fell back when they saw them and allowed them to pass to the center of the throng. The rabbi stood in the doorway so that both those in the house and without could distinctly hear him. The scribe had never seen him before and, in spite of his deep-seated prejudice, could not help admiring the man whom he had come prepared to despise. It was no wild fanatic who stood before him, no noisy debater whose fiery eloquence would be likely to excite and inflame his hearers. He saw a man of gentlest dignity. Truth looked out from the depths of his calm eyes. Every word, every gesture carried with it the conviction that he who spoke taught with God-given authority. 
The scribe began to grow uneasy as he listened, carried along by the earnest tones of the speaker. There was a great commotion on the edge of the crowd as someone tried to push through to the center. "'Stand back! Go away!' demanded angry voices. The scribe was a tall man, and, by stretching a little, managed to see over the heads of the others. Four men, bearing a helpless paralytic, were trying to carry him through the throng, but they would not make room for this interruption. After vainly hunting for some opening through which they might press, the men mounted the steep, narrow staircase on the outside of the building and drew the man up, hammock and all, to the flat roof on which they stood. There is a sound of scraping and scratching as they broke away the brush and mortar that formed the frail covering of the roof. Then the people in the room below saw slowly coming down upon them between the rafters this man whom no obstacle could keep back from the great physician. But the paralyzed hands could not lift themselves in supplication. The helpless tongue could frame no word of pleading. Only the eyes of the sick man could look up into the pitying face bent over him and implore a blessing. The scribe leaned forward, confidently expecting to hear the man bidden to arise. To his surprise and horror, the words he heard were, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. He looked at Laban, his companion, and the three exchanged meaning glances. When they looked again at the speaker, his eyes seemed to read their inmost thoughts. Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts, he asked with startling distinctness. Whether it is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Here he turned to the helpless form lying at his feet. I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way unto thine house. The man bounded to his feet, and picking up the heavy rug on which he had been lying, went running and leaping out of their midst. Without a word, Laban and his two guests drew their clothes carefully around them and picked their way through the crowd. Phineas, who stood at the gate, gave them a respectful greeting. Laban only turned his eyes away with a scowl and passed coldly on. The man is a liar and a blasphemer, exclaimed the scribe, as they sat once more in the privacy of Laban's garden. Only God can forgive sins, added his companion. The paralytic should have taken a sin offering to the priest, for only by the blood of sacrifice can one hope to obtain pardon. Still he healed him, spoke up the scribe musically. Only through the power of Satan, interrupted Laban. When he says he can forgive sins, he blasphemes. The other Pharisee leaned forward to say in an impressive whisper, Then you know the law on that point. He should be stoned to death, his body hung on a tree, and then buried with shame. It was not long after that Joel, just back from a trip to Tiberias in a little sailing boat, came into the garden. He had been away since early morning, so he had heard nothing of what had just occurred. He had had good luck in disposing of his wares and was feeling unusually cheerful. Hearing voices in the corner of the garden, he was about to pass out again when his uncle called him sternly to come at once. Surprised at the command, he obeyed and was questioned and cross-questioned by all three. It was very little he could tell them about his friend's plans, but he acknowledged proudly that Phineas had always known this famous man from Nazareth, even in childhood, and was one of his most devoted followers. "'This man Phineas is a traitor to the faith,' roared Laban. "'He is a dangerous man and in league with these fellows to do great evil to our nation.' The scribe and the rabbi nodded approvingly. "'Hear me now,' he cried sternly. "'Never again are you to set foot over his threshold, or have any communication whatsoever with him or his associates.' I make no idle threat. If you disobey me in this, you will have cause to wish you had never been born. You may leave us now. Too surprised and frightened to say a word, the child slipped away. To give up his daily visit to the carpenter's house was to give up all that made his life tolerable, while to be denied even speaking to his associates meant to abandon all hope of cure. 
but he dared not rebel. Obedience to those in authority was too thoroughly taught in those days to be lightly disregarded. But his uncle seemed to fear that his harsh command would be eluded in some way, and kept such a strict watch over him that he rarely got beyond the borders of the garden by himself. One day he was all alone in the grape arbor, looking out into the streets that he longed to be in, since their freedom had been denied him. A little girl passed, carrying one child in their arms, and talking to another who clung to her skirts. It was Jerusha. Joel threw a green grape at her to attract her attention, and then beckoned her mysteriously to come nearer. She set the baby on the ground, and gave him her bracelet to play with, while she listened to a whispered account of his wrongs to the latticed arbor. "'It's a shame,' she declared indignantly. "'I'll go right down to the carpenter's house, and tell them why you cannot go there any more. And I'll keep watch on all that happens, and let you know. I go past here every day, and if I have any news, I'll toss a pebble over the wall and cluck like a hen. Then if nobody watches, you can come to this hole in the arbor again.' The next day, as Joel was going in great haste to the baker's, whither his aunt had sent him, he heard someone behind him calling him to wait. In another moment, Jerusha was in speaking distance, nearly bent double with the weight of her little brother, whom she was carrying as usual. There, she said with a puff of relief, as she put him on his own feet, wait till I get my breath. It's no easy thing to carry such a load and run at the same time. How did you get out? There is an errand to be done and no one else to do it, answered Joel, so aunt sent me. "'Oh, I've got such news for you,' she exclaimed. "'Guess what has happened. "'Your Rabbi Jesus has asked Levi Matthew to be one of his followers "'and go around with him wherever he goes. "'Think of it, one of those horrid tax-gatherers. "'He settled its accounts and gave up his position in the custom house yesterday, "'and he is getting ready for a great feast. "'I heard the butcher and the wine-dealer both tell you about the big orders he had given them. "'All the publicans and low-common people that are his friends are invited. "'Yes, and so is your friend the carpenter. "'Think of that now.' He is going to sit down and eat with such people. Of course, respectable folks will never have anything more to do with him after that. I guess your uncle was right about him after all. Both the little girl's face and manner expressed intense disgust. Joel was shocked. Oh, are you sure? You must certainly be mistaken. It cannot be so. I guess I know what I see with my own eyes and hear with my own ears, she retorted angrily. My father says they are a bad lot. People that go with publicans are just as unclean themselves. If you know so much more than everybody else, I'll not trouble myself to run after you with any more news. Mistaken, indeed. With her head held high and her nose scornfully turned up, she jerked her little brother past him and went quickly around the corner of the street. The indignation of some of the rabbis knew no bounds. It has turned out just as I predicted, said the scribe to Laban at supper. They are nothing but a set of gluttons and wine-bibbers. There was nothing else talked of during the entire meal. How Joel's blood boiled as he listened to their conversation. The food seemed to choke him. As they applied one coarse epithet after another to his friend Phineas, all the kindness and care this man had ever given him seemed to rise up before him. But when they turned on the Nazarene, all the stories Joel had heard in the carpenter's house of his gentle, sinless childhood, all the tokens he had seen himself of his pure, unselfish manhood, seemed to cry out against such gross injustice. It was no light thing for a child to contradict the doctors of the law, and in a case of this kind, little less than a crime to take the stand Joel did. But the memory of two faces gave him courage, that of Phineas, as it had looked on him through all those busy, happy hours in the carpenter's home. The other face he had seen but once, that day of healing in the synagogue, who, having once looked into the purity of those eyes, the infinite tenderness of that face, could sit calmly by and raise no voice against the calumny of his enemies. The little cripple was white to the lips, and he trembled from head to foot as he stood up to speak. The scribe lifted up both hands and turned to Laban with a meaning shrug of the shoulders. 
think of finding such heresy in your own household!" he exclaimed. "Among your own children!" "He is no child of mine," retorted Laban, "nor shall he stay among them." Then he turned to Joel. "Boy, take back every word you have just uttered. Swear you will renounce this man, this son of perdition, and never have aught to say well of him again." Joel looked around the table, at each face that shone out pale and excited in the yellow lamplight. His eyes were dilated with fear; his heart thumped so in the awful pause that followed that he thought every one else must hear it. "I cannot," he said hoarsely. "Oh, I cannot!" "Then take yourself out of my sight forever. The doors of this house shall never open for you again." There was a storm of abuse from the angry man at the open defiance of his authority. With these two, cold, stern men did not approve of his zealousness. He went to greater lengths than he might otherwise have done. With one more frightened glance around the table, the child hurried out of the room. The door into the street creaked after him, and Joel limped out into the night with his uncle's curse ringing in his ears. End of chapter six. Recording by Esther and Simonides. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acre Salt Story Classic.